Hey, it's Mark. From the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act becoming law to the three big insulin makers lowering their list prices, there's been a reordering of the pharma pricing chessboard. As far as the IRA, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is due to provide final guidance on key elements to implement the Part D price negotiation this summer, with the list of the first 10 Part D drugs selected for negotiation expected in September. Perhaps most importantly, the discounts negotiated for the first 10 drugs are due for finalization in September 2024. All of that being said, the law is already having a chilling effect on drug prices. That's according to Jack Micah, VP of Enterprise Medical Solutions and Emerging Biotech at Indigene, who's run some analyses on the data so far. I'll speak with Jack for all the ramifications of these major pricing developments on the pharma industry. Speaking of which, drug prices were on the menu when pharmacy benefit managers appeared on Capitol Hill last month. Lech is here to tell us about that with a health policy update. Hey Mark, today I'm going to talk about a few different health policy topics trending in the news, including, as you mentioned, an update on how lawmakers are increasing their scrutiny over pharmacy benefit managers in the drug pricing debate. Plus, the Biden administration has appealed a ruling by a federal judge in Texas that struck down Affordable Care Act coverage for certain free preventive health services. And Jack's here to give us an update on what's trending on healthcare social media. Yeah, this week we're going to be talking about how TikTokers are experimenting with putting kinesiology tape on their face overnight to remove wrinkles and how experts caution there's likely little benefit to doing that. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So as I said at the top of the show, a number of developments have unfurled on the drug pricing front. And I'm here with Jack Micah, who's VP in the PRMA division of Indigene, um, which is pharmaceutical reimbursement and market access, uh, and a widely recognized authority on pharma pricing policy to help put them into perspective for listeners. Jack, welcome back to the MMM podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's great to great to get to talk to you again. The last time we had you on was back in June. And since then, there's been uh, what I would call a reordering of the pharma pricing chessboard from the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act becoming law to the three big insulin makers lowering their list prices. What have we learned from these big changes? The changes are happening. Um, I mean, I think when we last talked, Mark, we were talking about the, the plan for them and, and how they might start to roll out. And here we are only a couple months into 2023 with the with the implementation of IRA and the the overhang of it to affecting affecting the way people actually go at things in pretty significant ways. We see some short term impacts that are intended consequences, others that I would classify as unintended consequences um, and certainly more to come. Happy to happy to delve into each one of those for a pricing geek like me. Um, those things are uh, like Christmas morning. <laughs> right. Lots to unpack here, if you will. Uh, let's start uh, by talking about how earlier this month, we're talking about the month of uh, last month, uh, we're recording this in late March. So earlier in March, CMS put out an initial memo with lots of details on drug price negotiation. What caught your eye as part of that memo? I think the interesting thing is that, I mean, it's there, there's there's a lot more detail about how this is going to work and where it might work. And there's and there's still a lot that isn't as well defined as it could be. I mean, it, as as simply as you look at, hey, we've got in the act that we're going to negotiate X amount of prices 
And then in the Biden budget that comes out um, almost almost contemporaneously with the memo that you're talking about, they say, actually, how about we negotiate more more prices than that? How about we how about we do this in a slightly different way in order to in order to accelerate what it is we're trying to achieve? Um, So I think especially when it comes to the negotiation part of the provisions, related to the act, which always were set up as the ones that would take the longest time to actually implement. And I think that people are in some ways the most concerned about. They're also the most, uh, they're the most written in pencil as far as where we're going, because I think people, people aren't really sure how it's actually going to get implemented as well as when it's going to get implemented um, in, in relation to, to, to the changes that will, that will be wrought by that. As opposed to the changes in the in the, as far as the inflation penalty, which you're already seeing kind of roll out, and the and the and the effect of the out of pocket caps, which which are supposed to happen in between those other two, but you're already seeing things happen with those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about written in pencil. I think this was what a lot of people kind of feared was that this would be the first step to toward. Uh, wider, you know, powers uh, for Medicare to uh, "quote unquote" negotiate uh, drug prices. I saw one analyst report that also dug into uh, some of the notable drugs expected to be negotiated, uh, and that third provision goes into effect in 2026. Right. Those include Eliquis, uh, Zarelto, Genuvia, Jardiance, and Ibruvica. So, kind of across the spectrum, a number of therapeutic classes implicated there, uh, but ones that are having the biggest impact on Medicare. Any surprises uh, in, in that memo, Jeff? I, I, don't, I don't think anything that anything that was truly a surprise from my perspective. I mean, I still think there, like I said, I still think there are things that, that need to be worked out in, in terms of things like, okay, we're going to go after Eliquis in, in, a, in a class where we spend a lot of money. And then you have to think about that in terms of patent expiry and a competitive class where there are a number of products, that's the part where when you say, okay, I'm going to negotiate this product in this class, you you have to think about it kind of like squeezing a balloon. You're going to squeeze the balloon in one place. What's going to happen in another place? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to negotiate price in this part of the world. What's going to happen with the other products that compete with that? Am I, am I going to, am I going to do that in a way that the market is gonna is gonna respond to in the way that I think it should, or or in different ways. I mean, in the same way as some of the early conversations that I had um, with people after after Lilly took the action that they did with their with their insulins in lowering the price, there was a lot of well, what are the what are, what are what are the other competitors going to do? And and my attitude towards it all along was well, I think we'll I think we'll see. But I think we don't only have have to think about what those competitors are going to do. We have to think about the impact on pharmacy benefit managers and and other players within the chain, as well as the patients that we're ultimately trying to trying to give a different kind of support to. So there's still that thing of okay, how exactly is this going to work when we get to price negotiation? And I don't think that it, it certainly. It certainly isn't transparent at this point. You, I, I might even speculate that it isn't actually all the way thought through at this point. Sure. And one of the other things that was interesting in terms of unexpected from the industry point of view was that the draft guidance 
calls for treating all forms of inactive ingredient as a single product for purpose of negotiation. So I think some of the manufacturers maybe didn't expect some of the newer uh, dosage formulations to be treated um, all as one lump sum. So um, things that uh, people are, are trying to you know wrap their heads around. But you just mentioned um, you know the, the insulin. Um, uh, uh, actions taken by the three big insulin makers. So how about we just kind of jump to that for a moment? Uh, you know, this this was also included as a provision in the IRA was uh, to limit monthly cost sharing for insulin to $35 for people with Medicare beginning this year. That's the other part of the, of the act that does go into effect this year. How does that lead us in perhaps some different directions? Well, it's been it's been very interesting, I think, in that in that um the 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 headline is 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 what you're talking about, Mark. Hey, we're 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 going after changing insulin costs. I mean, and 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 the way insulins have been handled over the last few years by the manufacturers, at best, has confused the the general public or the market, right? Because they've basically been saying, yeah, we're increasing our insulin prices, but we don't get any benefit of that. Our net price on these insulins actually goes down. And it's not a surprise that that the that the general public or or the or or or, um, or people who are non insiders say, wait a minute. So you're telling me you're increasing your price, but you don't get any benefit from it. Well, why are you doing that? Um, and now um, you, you've kind of got a little bit of the a little bit of that being turned on its head in saying, oh, well, we're going to limit the pre- we're going to limit out of pocket to thirty five dollars. So therefore. We're, we, the manufacturers, are going to lower our prices um, in, order to, in order to support that change. When, in fact, part of the reason that they're doing it is because of the way that prices are going to be calculated and a reset in the AMP is going gonna, is gonna to actually change the way that they're, they're going to price into the market, especially the Medicaid part of the market, where they've already now been limited for Medicare they're they're essentially saying we're going to take that price increase that we've been given back to PBMs in the form of rebates because we don't get any of the net benefit and we're not we're still not going to get any net benefit but in fact our net price might actually go up a bit with the action that we've taken and that that's that's one of those things that I think is is folks looking at the rules and seeing how they work in order to say, okay, let's think about where they can go, how we can think them through all the way in order to get to what the end game might be in this situation, as opposed to what the intended consequences are, what the unintended consequences might be and how they might fit together. It's part of the reason it's I got to believe it's part of the reason, too, why the changes in the insulin prices aren't the same on all forms of insulin. Um, mm-hmm. So there's 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 more there than just meets the eye when you when you it's not just oh look the insulin prices have gone down by seventy or seventy five percent or the like. I mean there's 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 more to it than that. Yes, and to, to your point, it's excellent, it's, which is an excellent one that uh, manufacturers like Lilly have been saying for a couple of years now that they're not getting a benefit from the price increases and just kind of taking a step back, you know, just for listeners after Lilly announced its insulin price cut, as you had predicted, Santa Fe and Novo would follow suit, which they did fairly quickly. It's, it's interesting to note how the narrative shifted, you know, from quote unquote U S insulin makers commit to lower costs. So patients can afford their medicines 
to quote unquote U.S. insulin makers will wind up saving money by lowering the amount they'd otherwise have to rebate Medicaid. So while many of us saw it as a, a bowing to pressure from the White House and the IRA's insulin price cap, the real impetus may have been a slightly older law, the American Rescue Plan of 2021, which was set to eliminate the cap, limiting how much manufacturers have to rebate Medicaid. What do you make of that theory, Jack? I think I think that I think that that theory is is part of the reason that 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 you're seeing happen what happened and and that goes all the way back to right the 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 unintended consequences when when Part D came into effect when all of the all of the dual eligibles got moved into into uh, into into Part D and out of Medicaid and therefore the Medicaid rebates that used to be paid for those patients went away. That was a windfall for a lot of manufacturers. So that it's it's just a, it's just it's just kind of building on the examples of thinking it all the way through, so that you understand not just what you intend to do, but you but you think about what else is going to happen and and how they're going and how different people from different angles are going to look at things and say, "Where's the opportunity for me?" Right. Yeah. As, as you as you wade into this, you see it from from different angles that weren't necessarily apparent uh, before when you and I were kind of talking offline. Hey, who's going to be next, you know, to lower their insulin prices? And uh, so uh, it's, it's just really fascinating to see it to see it play out. Let's kind of ping pong back over to the IRA, if you will. Um, you you wrote a couple of blog posts on this uh, earlier this year. How has the IRA been reflected already? In drug makers, 2023 price increases. It's it's been it's been very interesting, Mark. In that, I mean, this was one of those things that when the when the law came out, it was this, this was written pretty clearly how this was going to work. A little bit of obscurity because we don't really know what the amps are, so we can't really calculate it to the penny of of what's going to happen. But we 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 know well enough to be able to say, well, this is this is around what's likely to happen. And we went back and looked at it to say, hey, not just as the law is implemented, let's look back and say, were there, were there, was there in effect a, a chilling effect on, on the price increase trajectory that had been in place before this? And what it really looked like from the data was, yeah, but starting from, from the run-up to the, to the last presidential election, it seemed pretty obvious that for the top 50 Medicare drugs, there were changes in the trajectory of price increases, that folks decelerated their price increases in anticipation of, first, the focus that would be on, on, on drug prices with the, with the election, and then secondly, the fact that there was probably going to be some reform after the election. And the, the, it, it then got even more interesting as 2022 went on, right? And we got to the point of, yeah, there likely is going to be legislation passed. And it just so happened that at the same time, we went into a much higher inflationary period than we had had before. What you would expect is that as inflation went up, that drug manufacturers would say, well, are, are we at least need to take price increases that are going to keep our, our, our prices in line with inflation. Because what you had seen in the run-up to that was a deceleration of prices that, that put them on a trajectory that was below the new increased inflation rate. And largely what you saw as we went through the middle of last year and got to, hey, here are the rules 
as they're going to apply based on the IRA when we talk about inflation penalty, what we saw was basically that trajectory stayed the same, more or less the same. So still below what was going on and now an increasing gap to what was actually there from an inflationary perspective. And then what was what was most interesting, I think, was and, and we anticipated a bit was come January, which is when a lot of price, which is when a lot of manufacturers take their price increases, that potentially we would see manufacturers start to accelerate their price increases a bit again, mainly because they now had rules that said, we've given you a limit. If you go above this limit, you're going to have to pay a rebate back. But if you only go up to the limit, you're not going to have to pay a rebate back. And what we saw was there were there there was it, just in the month of January, there was an a, a, again an acceleration of the rate of price increase, and you had manufacturers, a lot of them, take that price up very close to what that new limit would be but not cross it. There were there are a number of products. I think it's, if I remember right, it's nine products of the 50 that as we calculated that ended up going above that new that new limit. But it's also not clear based on based on how long it's going to be until the rebates actually get paid, whether or not many of those products will stay above that limit or will drop back below it. Um, but you had a, a number of products that were significantly below that limit that moved up towards the limit, but stayed below it. So I would say, yeah, from the from the work that we've done with it over the last few months, it certainly seems like there was an effect before the law was there. There was there was even more of an effect in anticipation of the law. And then because of the the, the unusual circumstances of the changes in the in the inflation rate, after the law put after the law put rules in place that could be looked at pretty concretely and folks could do the arithmetic there was another change in what has happened since then so we're in that period of flux of of now i understand the rules and i'm and i'm going to figure out how i want to play by these new rules and we've, we've yet to see a period where you where you actually can say okay what does that mean for price increases going forward but I would not be surprised to have that be, well, those price increases going forward are going to certainly be managed around how that how that room will change in the general inflation rate. Because I think people, by and large, especially for the large Medicare drugs, are going to say, there's a big impact on my revenues if I if I change if I pay this penalty, so I'm going to consider whether or not I want to pay it. Wow, that was a lot. Sorry. Right. Yeah, you just gave me a lot to, to chew on there in terms of the, the, the new cost of doing business. Just pay the penalty. Perhaps. Right. Um, just to orient the listeners as well, you have those three key provisions of the act, the inflation penalty, uh, which, as Jack said, goes into effect this year, the cap on patient out-of-pocket costs, which goes into effect 2024, and the Medicare negotiating power, uh, which goes into effect 2026, uh, might might there be a, another effect uh, or a change in manufacturer price increase behaviors that we can expect to see in the next couple of years? What should people have their eye on? Yeah, I think I think I think yes is the answer to your question, Mark. I mean, the first one and the one that we're looking at now, and we're and we'll 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 put something out on soon is there's a little bit of a change in you have to think separately about the the inflation penalty on a part 
D as in dog drug versus a part B as in boy drug because the rules are different. And they've always, they, for, since we've had part D in place and since we had ASP reform a number of years ago, the, the price increases on those types of drugs have been managed differently. Now, CMS has already put out for the part B as in boy drugs what the CPI penalty will be for the first quarter of implementation. It's different because they're calculating it based off of ASP, which is a reimbursement product price. But the way that works is different than Part D. And I think the most, the most interesting thing from a price increase perspective is going to be how quickly do the, do the payers, especially the payers for Part D, talk about the fact that with the change in patient out-of-pocket, they're the ones who, under the act, are supposed to pick up the larger percentage of that bill. I got to believe that they're at the same time going to be going back to manufacturers saying, whoa, whoa hold, hold on a second. You're not getting a windfall from that. You're going to have to give me bigger rebates. And how quickly they're then going to look to say those same provisions that they would like to put in place related to similar similar kind of inflation penalties, similar kind of bigger negotiated rebates are not just going to apply to their to their Part D book of business, but are going to apply to their commercial books of business. We've seen that kind of transition in the past with other things. And I got to believe that something like that is is going to be in the works as we move into the future. Hmm. Around rebates. Right. Okay. Um, and the PBMs, as we know, are, are on Capitol Hill this uh, this week as we record this. So interesting to see uh, whether uh, and if there is an impact on the rebate rule, uh, which was um, the, the subject of, of a lot of uh, contentious uh, discussion um, right. over the last couple of years. Let's uh, take a step back again. We've been talking about uh, price increases, but what we haven't been talking about is launch prices. And I just want to touch on that for a moment. The last time I had you on, we had discussed a couple of studies, including one in the, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, showing that launch prices for new drugs had increased 20% per year from 08 to 2021, and that over the last two years, almost half of new drugs were initially priced above $150,000 per year. Some of the fastest growth in launch prices, uh, the study said, was occurring among drugs that treat rare diseases. Uh, and their median launch price is about $168,000 per year. And I had perhaps a bit ominously suggested that it's the kind of exponential growth that had some in Congress wanting to rein it in with measures like allowing Medicare to negotiate drug pr prices. Fast forward nine months and you know, we have the IRA going into effect uh, and the requirement for drug companies to pay rebates to Medicare if prices rise faster than inflation for drugs used by Medicare beneficiaries set to begin this year. But there's still a loophole uh, in launch prices. And so, you know, with, with sticker prices, uh, launch makers want to fix that. Do you think that they will? I think, I, I think that if anything, those two things aren't aligned, right? If, if somebody wants to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to control your launch prices by negotiating your price later in your life cycle, that's not going to work. Um, you know, what, if anything, what the CPI penalty kind of does does is it puts more pressure on that launch pre getting that launch price right. I mean, and that's one of those things that I I 
I'm, I'll stand on my soapbox and talk to people about is, you know, I, I, I don't believe that the, that the best launch price is the highest launch price. I think there's a way to optimize your launch price. And optimizing your launch price is about making sure that you've got the right kind of market access and patients can, can get access to your medicine. At the same time, you're charging a price that, that, that's going to allow you to have a, a good return. It's not necessarily that you're going to charge the highest price possible. Um, and certainly the dynamics around that are different when you think about it for a rare disease drug versus a mass market drug, for sure. Um, there's, there's more chances to, 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 to take it in different directions. But in both cases, if we're talking about a, a laws that say, if you increase your price higher than the CPI, what pressure does that put on launch price? It says, make sure your launch price if you're if you're going to do it, make sure you you optimize it and you get it to a place that that makes sense because you're not going to have the opportunity if you don't realize the value of your product the way that you should and you don't price it where you should. You're not going to have the opportunity to make that up once you realize it by taking significant price increases, which certainly has been a way that some 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 drugs have 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 operated over their life cycle in the recent past. That's part of the reason why the, the pressure on launch on launch prices, I think, has continued to be let's go, let's let's try and push these things higher and higher, which isn't always the best idea, in my opinion. I think I answered your question, Mark, or, or did I or did I go too far astray? No, no, that was great. That's great. Okay. <laughs> um, one, one more question on the IRA, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on from that. But um, I know uh, when. Uh, um, Vas Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis uh, and the incoming chairman of the uh, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association of America, the trade group rep representing the industry, um, announced his agenda uh, as chairman uh, at the beginning of the year. He said one of his agenda uh, items was to normalize uh, the new drug price laws, different timelines for large and small therapeutics. Uh, and he um, laid out his core priorities for the industry to take forward. Uh, and, you know, one was being that to, to correct the distortion of the nine versus 13 small molecule or NDA versus BLA. How successful do you think pharma will be in amending the IRA's timeline uh, for small molecule drugs? Um, I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, it, I, I don't think it's going to be easy because I, because I think in the, in the, in the short run, if you say, "Hey, okay, we want to, we want to, we want to make these, th we want to synchronize these things," I think the answer from the politicians is going to be, "Okay, we don't have to do thirteen; we can do nine for everything." And I don't think that's the answer that mm. that, that Pharma yes. wants. Um, you know, the the um, the the reality is that those those differences come from the way that products have have operated over over a long period of time. There are reasons that they're there, and I think I, I totally understand why 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 manufacturers would like to have a, a bigger number on the on the small molecules. But I I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, I think it would I think it would have to be okay. Well, what are you going to what are you going to trade us for that? And mm -hmm. and once once people start adding up the adding up the the impact of that, it, it it's going to be significant. Sure, sure. Yeah, there have been some proposals advanced, but uh, yeah, I can imagine that uh, it won't be such an easy uh, sell. 
one last question here, uh, getting you to look toward the future a little bit. I hear more states are now eyeing steps to cap the cost of EpiPens. Um, you know, I, I think the um, you know Congress now that they've passed the I seen the IRA pass uh, and and put successfully pressured uh, companies to lower the cost of insulins. You know, they need a new uh, catalyst, and, and some people say EpiPens um, could be that, that next point of focus. Um, your your take on that, and what else should we keep an eye on on, on the pricing front? I think, I think it's a – I think you're right, Mark, that, that that's, that is a kind of, okay, we, 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 got, we, we got our nose under the tent with, with, successfully with insulins. Where else should we go and what else should we do? I think EpiPens are likely are, are a likely candidate. Frankly, I think one of the other candidates maybe should be generics and out of pocket for generics because I think the out of pocket for generics, which people generally think is a is a very low number, oftentimes isn't that low anymore. Um, and the mm. and the the actual you know the the actual impact when you add it all up over the over the over the nation of a 20% coinsurance on uh, on a on a specialty drug that's used by a small number of patients versus uh, versus a, an incremental increase in the in the copay on generic Lipitor um, the generic Lipitor adds up very quickly now the issue with that is when I talk about that um, that isn't necessarily a manufacturer issue. That's much more likely to be a payer issue and a PBM issue. So that some of those discussions on 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 Capitol Hill this week might go might go into that area as they look around and say, okay, this is we're we're really happy that we were able to do this with with insolence. Where else might we go? Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the other things that definitely you've you've seen over the last couple of years, and I think increasingly you see you see states thinking about thinking about legislating against it too, is the copay accumulators. Um, a lot of people are saying, "Hey, you know, we under we we could we've now figured out what you're trying to do with the with the with the copay accumulators, and is it really such a bad thing that a manufacturer wants to try to offset the the cost of a, a of what a, a of of what a what a patient is paying in their copays? And I see both sides of the argument, but I see that also being a being a likely candidate for somebody to say, how do we address this differently in order to not get to unintended consequences, but get back towards intended consequences? Yeah, sure. And that's a nice uh, note to end on. Uh, Jack, this was a fascinating discussion as always. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Happy to do it anytime, Mark. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, a federal judge in Texas ruled against a section of the Affordable Care Act that makes health insurers provide free coverage for certain preventive health services, from free cancer screenings to HIV drugs. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor ruled that the provision was unlawful. The decision would impact services that fall under the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force A&B recommendations, which include free breast cancer screening, blood pressure tests, HIV prevention, and supporting quitting smoking. The ruling sparked concerns about Americans' access to those services, which the Biden administration and other organizations, including the American Heart Association, noted were essential to health. The Justice Department has appealed the decision, though, setting off what may become a lengthy legal process that could end up at the Supreme Court. 
The case is now heading to the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. While that ruling has been creating controversy, a push to intensify scrutiny over pharmacy benefit managers in Congress has been simmering in the background. Recently, more policymakers have begun to turn their attention to PBMs and their complex role in drug pricing, questioning whether the entities are necessary in the healthcare system or simply middlemen who drive up drug costs without providing much benefit. Last week, the Senate Finance Committee held a hearing on the issue, with Senator Ron Wyden calling out PBMs as driving up drug costs for Americans. I believe this is an industry that is going in the wrong direction, and that's having a big impact on the prices that Americans pay at pharmacy counters from one end of the country to another. Wyden and other bipartisan lawmakers said they're hoping to, quote, modernize the rules of the road for PBMs as drug pricing continues to be top of mind for Americans. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And speaking of what's top of mind for Americans, uh, what's top of mind on TikTok this week, Jack? Yeah, it's actually not what's on top of mind, but what's on your face. Uh, Lesha, in addition to covering the arcane world of PBMs, delved into the TikTok trend of people putting kinesiology tape on their face overnight in the hopes that it would uh, take away wrinkles and bits part of an anti-aging trend that we've seen on there. Kind of uh, natural Botox, taping my face to stay, and I quote, young forever, four instead of four. Um, it's it's one of those things, and I kind of wanted to have this more as a free-ranging conversation rather than me just updating what's on TikTok since Lesha wrote the article as well about the fact that you know TikTok seems to come to us every week or so with something new in terms of people trying to lose weight be younger, be healthier, you know, healthier skin, all that sort of stuff. And this one, I, I think we were talking about it offline, but it's it's rather benign compared to some of the other ones that we've seen, even some of the other mental health uh, advice that we've seen. But it's certainly not something that's good. I know, Lesha, some of the experts that you incorporate into the article were like, it's not the worst thing, but it's certainly not a good thing. Yeah, um, I just I want to mention one of those experts, um, Dr. Anthony Yoon, who's probably the most well-known plastic surgeon influencer on TikTok. Like he has more than 8 million followers. He posted a reaction video to one of these videos where a girl was using the tape overnight and claiming, oh, it's reduced my wrinkles overnight. You know, he explained that there might appear to be an initial uh, effect, you know, after after wearing the tape all night because it sort of prevents your forehead from moving more. But long term, there's going to really be no particular benefit to reducing wrinkles. Um, so, you know, other experts have kind of said basically the same thing. Um, you know, if it makes you feel better, I guess you can use the tape, but there's really nothing to prove that it's going to work. But yeah, you know, as you mentioned, Jack, it is one of the, uh, I guess, less harmful trends that we've seen, you know, like NyQuil chicken, for example, which the FDA actually issued a warning about because it was actually dangerous to eat chicken cooked in NyQuil. But uh, yeah, the this taping trend is just one of the, the latest many trends on TikTok. And it kind of fuels in with some of the other anti-aging stuff. I know in the article you mentioned things like um, silicon patches, which I had heard about. But then there were other things like slugging, glass skin, LED light therapy. It just seems like everybody kind of goes on the app. And you know, if you're looking for an answer, I guess you're going to go to pretty drastic measures to try and find it. Whether or not it's actually useful, I think, is kind of the, the bigger issue, at least for our audience. 
Right. You know, it's people are going to TikTok. You know, there was that recent study that said, um, you know, most Gen Z and millennials are going to TikTok for health information. Um, they're obviously flocking there for diet information, food information, skincare, uh, anti-aging, as as you mentioned. Um, but this trend is sort of an example of how health misinformation is being proliferated so easily through these trends. Um, I'll also point out that that kinesiology taping is largely used by physical therapists. Um, you know, to help athletes or help people who have sore muscles or, or stiff muscles or something out of alignment. But even in that scenario, there's not a lot of consistent scientific backing that um, kinesiology taping works for physical therapy. Um, you know, I've done a bit of an overview of some recent studies that have said there's inconsistent evidence um, that it even helps people in physical therapy. So, you know, it's just interesting that we don't really even know if it works for its original purpose. Yeah, that is really interesting that you pointed out there. And again, kind of to your point about the misinformation thing, certainly while there's this larger conversation about whether the U.S. is going to ban TikTok or limit it in the states, it's it's interesting to see that health misinformation still is you know seemingly alive and well on the platform. And I know there was a lot of concerns you know when they had the recent hearing with the CEO of TikTok about data security and everything. You know that's another one, especially for our audience. Again, that's that's something that's got to be top of mind for for lawmakers and leaders when they make these decisions. Definitely. As 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 well as the impact on 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 kids, you know, watching all the, all of this um, in the UK, they recently reported um, on the first uh, case of social media actually being blamed for a suicide uh, of a teenager, and you know, President Biden actually mentioned that in his State of the Union, as we've discussed before, uh, you know, the negative effects of social media on on children. So, absolutely, like like you said, I'm sure this will play into uh, those into that rhetoric, you know. In, in terms of uh, pressuring TikTok to, or China to divest itself of TikTok and to to rein in, you know, social media. But uh, you know, it's just interesting as you, as you guys point out, you know, anti aging is you know is is so big. You know, people are just as obsessed of finding out, you know, and, and little hacks, you know, for that as they are for for weight loss, which is another big theme that we've been reporting on, you know, and the, the fact that Ozempic and the semaglutide products have been taking off um, and, you know, the demand has been fueled off-label in particular uh, on social media. And as those products see, you know, huge, uh, a huge spike in, in demand, this is another one, you know, where Social media is kind of just fanning the flames, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a cautionary tale. Um, you know, people put a lot of stock in kinesiologists um, right alongside uh, Western medicine, you know, and their physicians. So, uh, you know, you have a combination of a very hot social media platform and a very um, gullible public. Well, should I use that term, or just a very impressionable, impressionable. public? So, <laughs> impressionable. <laughs> Yes, you know, impressional, yeah. but also just, I think partially people are motivated by just the desire to try anything to, to look younger, um, you know, and sort of experiment with any hack that comes along. So, Right, right. And use themselves as guinea pigs. For sure. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.